0: Lord, we ask that you would use what you say to us in Scripture to help us fix our vision on you and you alone. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was in graduate school, I got the nickname Bible Boy in one of my classes. It wasn't meant as a compliment. We would be talking about some book or some poem, and one of my fellow students would look at me and say, well, what does Bible Boy think? She'd say it in a tone of voice that implied that the words Bible and think were contradictions in terms. And that's the culture we live in, where being a Christian is synonymous with being brain dead. And in the middle of that culture, it is easy as Christians to feel like sometimes we need to apologize for being a Christian or feel embarrassed about being a Christian because it's just not smart to do. And that's what many of our graduating seniors who are helping us in worship today have already faced. In some of the schools that they've gone to and will face as they graduate and go on to college or go on into jobs. So today I want to just talk a little bit about what it is that we as Christians have to offer a culture that often scoffs at us. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. How is it that we can say the same thing? I am not ashamed of the gospel in a culture where being a Christian is often looked down on. And the passage that we just read, I think, gives us some clues. Paul is, in, is speaking in Athens, which was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was sort of Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, not Berkeley, but Harvard, Yale, and Stanford all rolled up into one. And Paul's talking to two different people, two different groups. The Stoics, who used reason to figure out what nature was all about. They were sort of the scientists. And they prided themselves on being able to handle whatever life threw at them. Grin and it" was their motto. The other group were the Epicureans. And they believed that the gods, well, they might exist, but they're kind of remote and far off. So the point in life is to gain pleasure and avoid pain. And their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry. So in Athens, what you have is a place where people prized human reason and intellect, People had a vague belief in a lot of different gods, but basically figured all religions were about the same. There was a lot of self-reliance, a lot of independence, and the point in life was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Hmm, let's see, does that sound familiar to anyone? That would be our culture, wouldn't it? And in the middle of this culture, the Apostle Paul acts as though he has something to offer, not something to hide. Acts as if he has something to say that he doesn't have to be embarrassed about. Paul understands that what he has to share is good news. Verse 18 says that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus. Didn't say he was preaching the bad news about Jesus, right? Evangelism is a scary word. It just means bringing good news. Right? And Paul was bringing good news. He wasn't walking around saying, hey, yeah, have you all heard the good news, Athenians? You're all going to hell, right? Doesn't say that. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't judge them. He offers them good news. And he does it in a very smart, very sophisticated, intellectual kind of a way. But he also leaves something out. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul is smart. He meets the Athenians right where they're at. He, he uses their language, their culture, even quotes their poets. And he says, I noticed you're very religious people. So religious, you even have an altar to an unknown God. And Paul says, the good news I have for you is this unknown God that we're all looking for. He can be found. He can be found. You can know him. And in Athens, that's really good news. They had over 30,000 gods that they worshipped in Athens. 30,000. And you think going to church once a week is hard, right? Imagine that. And they even had altars to gods they hadn't yet heard of, just in case they left one out and might get zapped, you know, just kind of hedging all their bets. Athens was a place where, in the words of the Eurythmics, everyone was looking for something. And that's our culture. All of us are searching for God. God. In one way or another. We're all asking questions that point to an unknown God. Why am I here? How did I get here? What makes my life matter? That's looking for God. In one way or the other. I remember once having a conversation with an atheist who spent an hour denying the existence of God. and then, she, But she confessed to me at the end that whenever she gets on an airplane, she always prays. Just to be sure. All right. We're all looking for God in one way or the other. And Paul says the good news is the God we're all looking for, he can be found through Jesus. But Paul goes on. He says the news gets even better than that. That's good news, but it gets even better. Because not only can God be known, but the God you're looking for, guess what? He's been looking for you too. He's looking for you. He's revealing himself to you. And Paul here is subtly critiquing the Athenians' epistemology. Epistemology is just a fancy word for how you know what you know. And in Athens, as in our culture, people assume the way you knew something was through reason and empirical evidence. That's how you know what's real. Problem with that is that not everything that exists can be proven through reason and empirical evidence. In 1490, no European could prove that America existed. Didn't mean America didn't exist, just meant they didn't have the tools to discover it. Not everything can be proven through reason. Sometimes we lack the tools. And Paul's saying to the Athenians, hey, look, reason is great. It helps to do a lot of things in life. It can even help you get to God and figure out that God is a plausible, rational thing that might exist. But finally, if you're going to know God, reason isn't going to get you there completely. We need revelation. God's going to have to reveal himself to us. And that just makes sense, right? I mean, if God is infinite and holy, he is beyond our capacity and our finite brains to understand. So if we're going to know him, he's going to have to reveal himself to us. And this is what makes Christianity unique. In every other religion, we have to seek God. We somehow have to figure out what God's all about. But you know what? That dog won't hunt, will it? Because God is too big for us to get in our little brains. So if we're going to know God, it's because God comes to us. And that's what God does through Jesus. He reveals himself. Before I was a Christian, I remember I was always surrounded with Christians. I always ended up working with Christians. I ended up living near Christians. I mean, I was just awash in Christians. And I remember thinking, God must really hate me to plague me with so many Christians. But in retrospect, He wasn't plaguing me. He was loving me. He was revealing Himself to me. The good news is we can know God. Better still, we don't have to figure Him out. He comes to us. And the best news of all is... Paul goes on to say we don't have to earn his approval by doing a bunch of stuff for him. But again, this is different than all the other religions where we always have to do stuff so that we don't get zapped. And Paul says this God cannot be served with human hands. Instead, he is the one who gives us everything. And in a world where we always having to prove ourselves, always having to try to be the perfect parent, perfect spouse, perfect employee, keep up with the Joneses, to know that God loves us just as we are, not as we should be, that is powerful good news. And it can change your life. Lee Strobel tells a story about a guy in his church who was at an airport. And he was standing at a booth where they were selling sunglasses. And this guy decided he wanted to try to share his faith with the clerk. But he didn't know how to get the conversation started. So he said to the clerk, you know, these sunglasses look pretty good. And the clerk said, yeah. The guy said, I bet they protect your eyes from the sun's rays. And the clerk said, yeah. And then this guy came up with the worst line in all of evangelism history. He said, wouldn't it be nice if there was something to protect you from the burning fires of hell? <laughs> Worst line ever, ever in evangelism history. There has never been a worse line than that. Clerk looked at him and said, you know, I've been thinking about that lately. <laughs> they Went on to have a great conversation about God and his love and Jesus died to forgive us. The clerk gave his life to Christ, even after that horrible line. You see, you don't have to be an expert at evangelism to do it. That's how good the good news is, even when we mess it up. The great good news about a God who loves us just as we are, not as we should be, has the power to attract people. It's not something we have to be embarrassed about. It is the power of God to change lives. You heard it in Tracy and Greg's testimony. And that's what Paul's trying to get at in his speech to Athens. And he uses some very intelligent, sophisticated, academic arguments to do it. wasn't brain dead. But you know what? It didn't work very well. It didn't work very well. You know, this story is usually looked at as a great example of how to talk to smart people about Jesus. And in a lot of ways it is. But it actually didn't work all that well. You know, a few people became Christians, it says in the text. But it says most of the people sneered at him. I just love that word. Sneered at him. But right? having spent most of my adult life in universities, I can tell you that is the coup de gras of intellectual debate. But that's the double dog daria of university talk. When you really want to put someone down, you don't argue with them, you just sneer at them. <laughs> I sneer at you and your silly ideas. Now go away or sneer at you again, right? And that's what they do to Paul, they just sneer. In other places Paul visits, he starts riots because so many people become Christians and leaves churches behind, filled with believers, but not in Athens, right? He leaves behind no church. There's no letter in the Bible to the Athenians, you know, talking about how you should sneer not, lest you be sneered at, right? None of that. No church. He just, a handful of Christians. It's kind of a failure. And I think it's because Paul leaves something out. He doesn't mention the cross, He leaves out the cross. In most of his other sermons, Paul talks about the cross, but not in this one. And then from Athens, Paul goes on to Corinth. And it it seems that he had been affected by his experience in Athens because at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about his first days in Corinth. And he says this. He says, when I came to you, that is from Athens, I didn't come proclaiming the mystery of God in lofty words or wisdom. Been there, done that, didn't work. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For since the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. It's as if Paul realizes he made a mistake not mentioning the cross. Tried to be too intellectual, too smart, too wise, and it didn't work. Should have stuck with the basics. God who loved us enough to die for us, there's the power. Martin Luther said, when in doubt, flee to the cross. When you don't understand something, flee to the cross. It'll explain it. Maybe not in completely reasoned, rational terms, but in a language of the heart too deep for words. When you wonder how loving God can let people suffer, flee to the cross. And see that whatever we bear, God bears too. When you wonder if anyone cares about you, flee to the cross and see that God has loved you enough to die for you. When you feel like you're at a dead end, flee to the cross and see that God can turn any tragedy into victory. And for heaven's sakes, when you're evangelizing, when you're talking about Jesus, flee to the cross. It is the simple good news. You don't need a Ph.D. in evangelism to do it. Just point to the foolishness of the cross. Because what finally connects us to God isn't reason or arguments. At the end of the day, those can be helpful, But the foolishness of the cross is what changes us. We are loved into the kingdom. We are not argued there. Karl Barth was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Wrote tons of books and articles. And some of you have heard this quote. He was once asked, what's the most profound thing he ever learned? And he said, that's easy. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Pretty simple stuff. But what else would you expect from a movement that was started by the son of a carpenter who never went around spouting off Greek and Hebrew word studies, instead just told simple stories about farmers and fishermen. And I'm not saying, you know, that we need to, as Christians, check our brains at the door. Of course not. We need to be well-educated in our faith, and reason can be very, very helpful in getting us to the plausibility of, of the Christian truth. But at the end of the day, we need to remember that the God's foolishness, his foolish sacrifice of himself for sinful us, is wiser than all human wisdom could ever be. And it's more life-changing than anything else. I know of a professor was an atheist, pretty hostile to Christianity. But then his life started to fall apart and his wife left him and his career was sagging and just kind of hit the skids. And one day he was in a public restroom. And on the floor near the sink was one of those little Christian pamphlets. It wasn't a fancy academic intellectual argument, just a simple tract called The Four Spiritual Laws. And the first line of that pamphlet reads, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. The professor could not get past that first line, moved him to tears. He was captivated by the thought of a God who loved him enough to die for him and could do something with the mess that his life was in. That started a very, very long search for this man, which eventually led to him becoming a Christian. Out of that, he began to realize that he didn't have to impress God the way he had to impress his academic colleagues. And that freed him from some of his workaholism. He began to see what mistakes and sins he'd made in the past and how to recover from those. Changed his life. At a time when he was in no position to feel proud and wise, I mean, he's in a bathroom after all, our foolish God got a hold of this foolish man through a simple little tract and showed him that being a fool for Christ is probably the wisest thing you could ever do. That's the power of the gospel. You know, when I was at Stanford, I had the privilege of being around some of the smartest people in the world, Nobel laureates, internationally known scholars, and those people taught me a lot. But I also saw a lot of wrecked lives, loneliness, frantic attempts to feel significant, hoping the next publication, the next endowed chair would make their lives feel worthwhile. And at the same time, I knew so many people in my own life who had been completely transformed through the simple message of Jesus. Like an atheist friend of mine who abused alcohol and slept with every guy she could find because she had such a low self-esteem, she was just looking for affection wherever she could get it. Until one day, I accidentally led her to Christ, and some of you have heard me tell this story before. Just to review, I was making fun of Christianity, and she kind of got interested in it and started asking questions, especially about the part about God loving us, and at the end, she just ended up praying to become a Christian right in front of me while I was making fun of it. So I went home and said to God, if I'm going to go around making Christians, I better be one too. So I prayed to become a Christian. You've heard me tell that. First time two atheists ever led each other to the Lord. (laughs) But I never told you what happened after that to this woman. I never told you the rest of the story. Well, she went on and found a great church where she was surrounded by a community of people who really loved her. And she was able out of that to connect to the love of God, which helped her feel better about herself. Gave her the strength she needed to stop abusing alcohol, stop sleeping around. Started hanging out with Christian men who treated her as a daughter of God and gave her dignity and self-worth. Jesus changed her life. Now that is a foolish conversion story, right? That is a weird way to become a Christian. Oh, an atheist converted me. Great. But there is power in this foolish story of a God who is so crazy in love with us that he'd rather die than lose us. And sometimes I think we make it too complicated. That's the good news that we have to offer the world. And we don't have to be ashamed of it because it has power in that story. These students that are helping in in worship today, they're graduating from high school, which means that they've acquired a certain degree of wisdom, supposedly. Right? You all look pretty smart. so. And they're going to go on into colleges and jobs where where they're going to get even more wisdom. But when I compare God's foolishness to all the smart things I ever learned at universities... I'm convinced that the foolishness of God is wiser than all human wisdom can muster. And in a world where people wonder if they matter or if they're just a random assortment of cells, where we're constantly having to perform to prove that we have any value, maybe what we need isn't great arguments and sophisticated philosophy, maybe we just need a little bit of good news. God loves you, and He has a wonderful plan for your life, and He died to set you free. Foolish? maybe to the human mind. But as Scripture says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings such foolish good news to a world that desperately needs to hear it. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And neither do you students need to be as you enter the world and neither do we need to be as we go out into the world. So let's together lift high the foolishness of the cross because that is the power of God to save souls and change lives. And that is the smartest thing you're ever going to hear. Lord Jesus, thank you for this simple yet profound good news that you loved us enough to die for us. Lord, help us to connect to that and out of that live lives that draw people to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.